This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. The fun part of preparing for an event like the inauguration was the opportunity for me to look back. We continue to build upon the solid foundation that we've inherited from them. Part of the reason for this project to begin with was a goal to bless the students. The world is coming to us, and as a result, many are going out into the world after they study here. And we look forward to seeing how the Lord would open up opportunities for us to continue to serve in that direction. I think many would acknowledge in our present time that our country, America, is more quickly becoming like the first century than the 20th or the 19th century in terms of the place of Christianity in the American culture. You can follow them. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord, is what Joshua declares with firmness. There is an element here that Paul is declaring similarly. That is, there are all these competing gods, which, by the way, are not real and are being defeated, and the gospel is overcoming them because Christ is real. Here, you can follow them, or you can follow Christ in whom are found all things, the creator and redeemer of all. Is his central message to those who struggle with competing religions, philosophies, temptations that come along the way, that Christ is supreme, no one and nothing else. Now, Scott Clark. January 9, 2018 was a big day in the history of Westminster Seminary, California. On that day, the seminary welcomed distinguished visitors from across the globe as we celebrated the inauguration of the fourth president in the history of the seminary, the Reverend Mr. Joel E. Kim. He follows in the footsteps of Dr. W. Robert Godfrey, who served as president for 24 years, and Drs. Robert G. Dendalk and Robert B. Strimple. We know how important inaugurations are. Americans witness them every four years as a president chosen by the Electoral College takes the oath of office. And so it is here. The faculty were in their academic regalia. Dr. Godfrey gave a solemn charge to Professor Kim. The chairman of the board read the oath of office and President Kim took the oath before God and the board and the faculty and the uh, assembled there in the uh, chapel. Perhaps most importantly, President Kim gave his inaugural address. Though it might be tempting to dismiss such remarks as mere formalities, history tells us that they are much more than that. For example, if you want to understand the history of Westminster Seminary, California since 1993, one needs to read the inaugural address that Dr. Godfrey gave in 1993, which you can do because it's published in two volumes, Always Reformed, and also the volume A New Old School, both published by Westminster Seminary, California. The Kindle version of Always Reformed is available via Amazon. The president of Westminster Seminary, California, inherits a legacy, but he also sets a path for the seminary, and the inaugural address is his statement of that path. So it seemed like a good idea to sit down with Joel and discuss his inaugural address and to find out about the state of the seminary and his thoughts about the future of Westminster Seminary, California. As I say, Joel is president of the seminary and assistant professor of New Testament. He's taught New Testament here since 2005. He's also a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America and co-editor and contributor to Always Reformed Essays in Honor of W. Robert Godfrey. This is part two of a two-part discussion with President Joel Kim on thankfulness, humility, and confidence. 
this is exactly the kind of discussion I wanted to have because I wanted to get into some of the things from Colossians, some of the ideas, the teaching, the background of Colossians that lay behind your inaugural message. So these are the kinds of ideas that animated you as you addressed us about thankfulness, humility, and confidence. Just briefly, why those three points out of Colossians, thankfulness, humility, and confidence, why are they so important? This is a tough one to answer because obviously there are certain practical considerations and there are certain convictional considerations. One is, I wish I could have spent hours just talking about Colossians. I think that would have been quite interesting. And it was a rainy day that day. And so maybe many might have appreciated it, but I was given strict timelines in terms of how much time I can spend. And so there is... But you're the president. Don't you understand? You can do what you want. Oh, anyway, carry Scott, on. Scott, I don't think you understand how little power I do have. Uh, I'm a servant of servants is basically what that means. But there is this practical consideration. There is this convictional consideration. Yeah. On the other hand, that is, what are things... And we hope that the Lord grants to us years to unpack this as an institution together. But what are things that I, as an individual, a minister, the one whom the Lord has given an opportunity to lead this institution, what do I want to emphasize? This is not to say that others are less important from all the things that I could have drawn out. What are things that I want to highlight given the opportunity and the moment that I have? That's the balance that we're trying to make as we think about it. As you might have noticed here, for me, I really draw upon my predecessors, and in particular, my immediate predecessor, Bob, that he laid out for us in 1993, as you alluded to in the earlier part of our broadcast here, his comprehensive Calvinism is how he called it in terms of a vision for the future. Where we stand now as an institution is that we have inherited as well as adopted that perspective and vision in terms of our desire to build a clear, unashamed, confessional reform theology as our foundation in terms of who we are theologically and what we proclaim in terms of our content. Where, for me, I hope that we can continue to grow because here our theological convictions do not go through seismic changes between person to person. Here, what I've inherited in our institution and what our faculty holds dear will not change in terms of our theological convictions going forward. Does that mean that the work is done? Far from it. What are some things that we ought to think and prayerfully engage as we think about this proclamation and the work that we're engaged in? And from my vantage point, the area that I wanted to emphasize for our students, because that's the primary audience of the address, for our faculty, staff, and board, also our primary audience for the proclamation, because those are the two constituents that I have in mind. Sure, there is this desire to speak to the broader audience, but really it's to my family that I want to speak. And in speaking to that family, this incredibly rich and amazing gift that we have received of serving the church with his gospel and his word, this foundation that has been so firmly laid down that I hold dear and our faculty and our members hold dear, what can we do as we move forward? And there are things that I hope that I can be in terms of who I am and as an institution we can be. On the one hand, I want us to be thankful for where we've come. It's been four decades of Lord's continued blessings, not without challenges and difficulties and burdens, but I'm amazed that we're here. 
I'm amazed. The Lord has been really good to us. And I don't think in the midst of some of the challenges that are before us, as the Colossians are reminded by Paul over and over again, he thanks God for where they are. And as an institution, we ought to be singing praises to the Lord, not because everything is hunky-dory and easy, but simply because the Lord sustained us until now. And we see it. He has given us just enough to continue, not enough to sit back. but to see his gracious hand upon it. And it was just a reminder to me and to all of us how wonderfully the Lord has provided. I don't know if you noticed on that stage were my senior colleagues who represent the origins of our school. That was intentional. Bob, who's my predecessor, who was at the beginnings of this institution, Dennis Johnson, who came in six months into the new institution, who's retiring coming this year. Steve Ball is the next closest to the beginning. Two years in, he was hired to start teaching in this institution. Flanking me were these men that the Lord provided for these institutions. And at different stages, I would imagine we have different thoughts about our journey thus far. But I cannot help as a newbie coming into this office that we ought to be very thankful. And in thankful and seeing the Lord's gracious hand upon it, one of the things that's seen in Paul and the Colossians is we ought to be humbled by all this. I mean, this is not us. Yeah, so this is your second point. Yeah, this is my second point. And you cite uh, Colossians 1, 24b and 25, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God that was given to me for you. One of the things that Paul makes clear throughout his writings, and Colossians as well, is that while you have guys like Epaphras, while you have guys like Paul, they were placed there. It's by divine, gracious initiative that they do what they do. And their carrying on is also by divine, gracious power that they depend upon. And the content of what they do is Christ and him we proclaimed, he says. Nothing about it is about Paul. Nothing about it is about Colossians. Sure, it's written to Colossians by Paul, but the main character in all this is God at work. And we've seen God at work. That's the reason why we're thankful. And this is the reason why we're humbled in recognizing that the Lord is at work. The gospel is moving and multiplying and bearing fruit. And the continued work takes place where his sovereign, gracious fingerprints are all over what takes place, leading us to not only be thankful, but to humble to recognize that we are leaders who lead with a limp. We are at best an accidental leader. None of us, myself chief among them, are here because we deserve to be here. If that's the thought that we have, I think we've really misunderstood what Scripture is teaching. I'm working on next week's chapel, and I'm titling it simply, Accidental Leader. Joni Erickson Tata, uh, in a recent forward, and Joni Erickson Tata, for those of you who don't know, she is a quadriplegic, I think, in a diving accident. And as a result, she's bound to a wheelchair, but incredibly effective spokesperson of Christ in terms of speaking about his grace. And she talks about the fact that were she to choose leaders, she would choose the best looking, the tallest, the healthiest, the brightest, and the richest. The Sauls. The Sauls of the world. But then, <laughs> then God chooses David's. Yeah. And here, we're humble to realize that we are all accidental leaders, including Paul. Who would have imagined him the leader of the early church, given his background and past and his experiences? Yet, here he is writing to the Colossians, reminding them it's not him. 
clearly. It's the Lord at work. It humbles us to say that this is not me. It's not about me. It's not even about us per se. All of us are here by God's grace. All of us go forth by God's design. All of us, whatever successes we see, really result from the Lord's gracious hand upon us. And we count on that because we recognize that it's not about us. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Earlier on, you made a point that I want to go back to, and that is this, that you are inheriting something and you are, in a sense, a custodian of that. And you're going to someday hand that off to someone else. In Reformed and Presbyterian churches, they're not built around, ordinarily, around personalities. And you've been kind of touching on this as we've been discussing this. I think that's a really important point because in American religious culture, particularly in the evangelical world, there's a lot of attention paid to individuals and personalities. And uh, things are announced as the ministry of so-and-so. And it's very easy for us to fall into this pattern of I'm of this one, I'm of that one, and so forth. And it seems to me part of what you're saying is intrinsic to what we're trying to do here is something very different to that, meaning the emphasis is on Christ, his gospel, and his church, of whom and of which we are mere servants, which is of the essence of the humility about which you were talking. Am I getting close to what you were saying? Yeah. You know, there are so many themes that you can draw out from Paul's writings, but the thing that he emphasizes over and over again is that all of us— have received delegated authority. Well, it doesn't start with us. No. It's something we were given. That's right. We receive it. It doesn't begin with us. It doesn't end with us. And it's not about us. And then not only that, that we've received this delegated authority, that we are stewards. These are the words you use. We are servants. We are caretakers of this precious gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ that was given to us. This is true not only in the first century. This is true in the 21st century with my predecessors. This is true of me and our institution. This is not just Westminster Seminary, California. We're talking every seminary and every church. All of us who are engaged in the ministry of gospel proclamation, we are stewards. We are servants. We are indeed vessels made of jars of clay, as we're reminded, that at the end, the highlighting is not about me nor us. It's about the person that we desire to proclaim and declare. Frankly speaking, who I am is not only limited in the present time, a hundred years from now, nobody will remember me. Nobody will remember most of us. And nor should they, right? And nor should they. Time flies. We're mere agents of God's grace for the moment, and we want to be faithful. At the end, however, if people remember us as individuals more than the message proclaimed, then we were not the signposts. We are witnesses and we are proofs, but we are temporary. And the Lord's name is what we want to be in the business for, in being able to not only proclaim it, but teach our younger brothers and sisters to do that faithfully as well. And we hope that as institution, we can do that. So you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We're building a place for you to live on campus. In the spring of 2018, we'll open a new residential village of eight residential buildings, 64 apartments, including one, two, and three bedroom units, and a commons. 
where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of our new residential village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll-free 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village. wscal.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. John 3.28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Is that not the slogan of every faithful minister? He must increase, but I must decrease. I don't know if you did this intentionally or not. You know that that was the text of my first convocation beginning of the semester. By your surprising look, you didn't pay attention clearly. Um, (laughs) I plead an aging memory. That's (laughs) That's what I plead. Uh, When we begin our school year, uh, we have this convocation where the president, to make it sound more grandiose than it actually is, kind of lays out the theme for the year. Those verses have been on my heart for some time, where in an interesting introduction to that answer, John says, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. And so you might recall that in the opening convocation, that's what I spent my time on, reminding me, frankly, and reminding all of us who are gathered that we are not Christ's. And that's really hugely important, isn't it? You know, for me, the inaugural address, forgive me for even making this sound bigger than it actually is, is a continuum from that opening convocation. Sure. That for me, that attitude, those attributes, that character with such a wonderful gift of God's grace that we hold in our hands, having that character as the ministers and leaders of the church is so essential to our time as we face many uncertain challenges. And I would love for myself, by God's grace, to continue to grow in that and for our institution to reflect that as well. We say that we're here for Christ is gospel and his church. So what you're saying is a corollary to that. It resonates with that. And I think it's really important for Christians and and Reformed Christians and ministerial students to think about humility in the concrete. There are ways sometimes of talking about humility where somehow the discussion of humility seems to terminate on me, right? And I understand that people mean well when they talk about humility that way, but in some way they've missed something. When the discussion of humility doesn't ultimately lead to Christ, the ground of our humility is that Christ came. 
Christ obeyed. Christ died. Christ was raised. And the essence of humility is pointing other people to Christ rather than to one's self. And that's really what we're doing here is largely 70% of our students are MDiv. And that means they're heading for pastoral ministry. Mm-hmm. And their lives are going to be spent. We trust, hope, and pray that their lives are going to be spent standing in a pulpit and making hospital visits and doing all the things that faithful pastors do, but in whatever way they're doing it, always pointing people to Christ. And in that way, pointing away from themselves to Christ. Scott, I cannot agree more with you regarding this because I do think in terms of character formation, one of the challenges that we have is with the proliferation of online life and social media, as well as the kind of culture that exalts names or personalities We have a lot of competing temptations because at the end of the day, it seems that you have to self-promote, you have to self-discuss in order to get ahead in life. And I recognize the temptation and I approach this not as someone who's immune from things like this. I understand that this is actually beginning with C.S. Lewis, but recently we told by Tim Keller as well, the overall concept of the need for us to be much more self-forgetful. Not that we self-deprecate, because even self-deprecating humor or common is really self-directed, right? But that we think of ourselves much less than we do, because we're people, as mothers jokingly tell their kids, nobody thinks about you as much as you do. (laughs) And in many ways, our preachers are the same. Nobody thinks about them as much as they do about themselves, myself included. And with the online life, as well as this kind of need or the sense of need to self-promote, really makes it difficult for us to forget who we are in the midst of the message that we ought to be proclaiming. The story and the message becomes about us in some ways, and it hides the core message that we purportedly are preaching on a regular basis. This is not a criticism of any one person, but it's a culture, and it takes every prayerful energy led by the Spirit for us to counter that, I think, instinct for many of us. When we think our pews are filled with people, that indicates success. But when someone is missing, therefore, it indicates failure on my part or the part of God. When we think our calendar books are full of speaking engagements and people who want to see me, but days that are open with nothing seemingly to do with people wanting your attention, wanting your time, indicating some kind of failure on our part. And the list can go on. The number of likes on your message or the number of people who listen (laughs) to it versus, you know, the lack of numbers of likes and thumbs up somehow indicating who we are on the one hand and how effective we are. I think this is a dangerous place for many ministers and leaders within the church. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. There's always a pressure to think about buildings, bodies, and budgets. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Right? I don't think this is original with me. I might have gotten it from Kim Riddleberger. I don't know. But I've heard it called the killer bees. Oh, interesting. And so I know as a pastor, I faced that temptation. You know, oh, when you, when absolutely. You, when you get together with other pastors, what's the first thing you talk about? Well, your budget, how many people are attending, you know, expansions of your facilities or, or, or whatever. And so now with social media on top of that, as you were saying, you know, we build this uh, persona of ourselves online. And I'm active on social media. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. 
The third thing that you touched on and the virtue that you want to instill in us is grounded in Colossians one twenty nine. And again, as you were saying, not a necessarily a big congregation, a big, influential, powerful congregation, as far as you know, a small work under pressure from within and from without. Anyway, you cite uh, Colossians one twenty nine for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And you go on from there to discuss the ground of confidence. And sometimes there's a sense or a thought that we're either humble or we have confidence, but we can't have both. But you think that we ought to be both humble and confident simultaneously. How do you get there from, for example, Colossians one twenty nine? Perhaps the juxtaposition is difficult, but I like to call it humbled confidence in the sense that it's not about me. It's about what the Lord is doing. We're humbled to see what the Lord has done and is doing. We're confident because what the Lord promises to do going forward. We've seen it. We've witnessed it. Like the disciples who've seen the miracles of Jesus, yet forgetting what he is able to do going forward in fits of doubt, we desire to be people who've seen and witnessed what the Lord is doing and then hold on to the promises given to us that he remains faithful to us. We are people as individuals who are sinners, who are forgetful, who forsake, but yet the Lord never forsakes and the Lord ever remains faithful to us. And so it's that trust that allows us to be confident. And this is where Paul is expressing that as he is continuing, it's all his energy that is at work. And this is the same energy he comes back later on in chapter two points out, the very same powerful energy that raised Jesus from the dead is the energy and power that is at work in Paul and that is at work among us as we carry on this task. It's that trust in the Lord's work that grants us the confidence that we need to go forth. When there was a generational and a leadership switch that took place in the book of Joshua in chapter one, this is not just about a leadership switch from Moses to Joshua, but it's also a national change from a nomadic tribe into now a sedentary nation called Israel. And at that time, the message the same as they go through this major change, the message that God gives to Joshua and through him to his people is be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous, not because you're much better than you think you are. He simply points out that I am there with you. And this is where our trust, my trust is as an individual, our trust is as faculty and as institution. We want to produce pastors and leaders of the church who lean upon the Lord's power and his grace as we go forth, because we will surely have our ups and downs, challenges, failures along the way, but the Lord uses all that for his glory. And we trust in that because he promised it to us. And again, Paul draws on the history of salvation as a response to the Colossian heresies. And so the Colossians were facing these terrible challenges, some challenges within. Almost certainly there were people, personalities that were seeking in some ways to lead them astray, to persuade them of syncretism. And in order to withstand that, the pastor, the minister, the student, and the members of the congregation have to have confidence that what the Scripture says is true, that Jesus really is the Savior, that the Holy Spirit really is at work, even though 
his work is not always immediately visible. It's amazing how simple those things sound and how difficult that is in terms of not just knowing, but having conviction about them. But Paul keeps coming back to it. Every generation is required to defend and exalt the name of Christ in the face of opposition that desire nothing less than the eradication of the name of Jesus. And we live in that generation ourselves, and we need men and women who, without fear nor hesitation, are willing to declare the name of Christ Jesus without compromise, without any kind of alteration. And I believe that that's the message of Colossians. I believe that that's what's needed in our generation. I pray daily that our institution can do the same, that as people who are in Christ Jesus, that we may be able to exalt his name without hesitation nor compromise. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.